Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today, Hugh Evans, is a co-founder and CEO of Global Citizen. You probably know Global Citizen from its mega concerts, which feature the likes of Chris Martin, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, and Priyanka Chopra Jonas. All this star power serves one purpose, to bring awareness to Global Citizen's goal, which is to eradicate extreme poverty. Many would say that's pretty ambitious, and Hugh agrees. But since poverty is man-made, he says, we are the ones who can overcome it. It doesn't require charity. It needs urgent action. Global Citizen calls on people around the world to do something. Send a letter to a president, tweet at a prime minister, canvas, campaign, lobby people in positions of power to make systemic changes that alleviate poverty in their pockets of the world. Global Citizen has millions of members and support from an incredible list of A-plus celebrities that include politicians, philanthropists, CEOs, movie stars, and pop stars. I've met Hugh a few times over the past few years, and I've always been struck by his conviction that this is the way to alleviate extreme poverty. And I get the feeling he's not going to give up on that goal ever because doing that would break a vow he made to his 14-year-old self when he spent a night in a Manila slum as part of a school trip. There were cockroaches, there was garbage, the place smelled bad, but the boy next to him who lived in that slum slept soundly. Melbourne-born Hugh realized the only reason that boy slept there every night, and he didn't, was a lottery of fate. That's when Hugh decided this is what he was going to spend his life doing eradicating extreme poverty. Here's Hugh Evans on Out of Office. Hugh, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you so much for having me today. Hugh, you've said your life's goal is to eradicate extreme poverty around the world. You've had celebrities, everyone from Lady Gaga to Chris Martin, join you in your mission. And of course, we'll talk about their role in a few minutes. But First, I want to go back in time. I want to go back and meet 14-year-old Hugh, who spent the night in a Manila slum, which really set you down this, this path you're on. What was it like? What did you see? What did you smell? What did you hear? Well, what happened was I was in my first year of high school. I was uh, 12, 13 years old, and a lady from a charity came and spoke at our school about raising money for communities in the developing world. And when you're that age, when, well, when I was that age, I was quite an eager young 
kid and I put up my hand and I said, okay, I want to see if I can raise some money. And I was so enthusiastic. I knocked on every single door in the neighborhood. I asked everyone I possibly could. And I ended up raising the most amount of money of any kid in Australia. And so the charity sent me to the Philippines to learn more about issues of global development. And there was one night in the Philippines that changed my life forever in a slum called Smoky Mountain. It's a slum built on top of a rubbish dump in the center of Manila. And this whole community revolves around scavenging. So the kids every single day run after the garbage trucks, try to get bits of scrap metal, piece of food and things that they can recycle. And that night I was placed in the care of a kid my own age. His name is Sonny Boy. We were both 14 at the time. But where I'd come from, you know, just middle-class Melbourne in Australia, he had tattoos on his forearm at the age of 14 because he was about to become his gang leader and that was his form of initiation. And that night he took me to his house and we cooked this meal together with some food that I brought with me. But when it came time to go to sleep, I'll never forget, he just cleared away the pots and pans on the ground and we lay down myself and Sonny Boy and the rest of his family, seven of us in this long line. And we just lay there that night, I'll never forget it, with the smell of rubbish all around us because we're on a garbage dump and cockroaches crawling around us. And I didn't sleep that night, but I lay awake thinking to myself, you know, it really is pure chance that I was born where I was born and he was born where he was born. As Warren Buffett calls it, it's the ovarian lottery. We don't deserve our lottery in life. And so I decided that night that I was going to commit my life to seeing what could be done to eradicate extreme poverty within our lifetime. And that's been my life's journey ever since. Do you know where Sunny Boy is now? I do, um, because... He actually messages me every day now on um, on uh, Facebook Messenger. <laughs> um, so, 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 what happened was tw- I, I lost touch with him because he, mm-hmm. he gave it was 1998, not actually 1997. I was there, and he gave me his number on a piece of paper. And my mum put my jeans through the wash, and I lost the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And so I actually assumed I was never going to be able to be in touch with him ever again. Um, and then 20 years later, I was invited to do a TED talk and um, some great group, a great couple from the Netherlands who actually live in the Philippines now, they saw my TED talk and they said, we think we know who Sunny Boy is. Oh. And I, I honestly couldn't believe it. And so I, a year later, I was invited to fly back to the Philippines properly for the first time in 20 years. And sure enough, I was reunited with him. And what was that was like? A, Oh, I mean, I was in tears. He was crying. Like, it was kind of unbelievable. Like, I, the, the strange thing was that he said that I had had an impact in his life as well, which was meant, I thought I was just another, you know, person that he would never remember. But, but we both remembered each other as vividly it was yes, as yesterday. And so we were, the first hour was just, we were in tears of, of joy and, and, um, and then, you know, and then it and then it became practical. You know, I, I was wanted to find out how he's doing. Um, what had happened is that the Manila authorities decided the land that Smoky Mountain was built on, because it was near the water, was actually very valuable land. So they did they didn't want it to be used for scavenging anymore. And they tried to relocate Sonny Boy and his family out of that community. So I set up a small fund to start to help. Um, all of his kids to go to school, as well as 
for him to buy a rickshaw so he had a source of mm. income and um and for him and his wife Annalise we we set up a, a a shop front in front of their home so they could start to have their own form of commerce because I've always believed that the, the best way to alleviate poverty is through giving people an opportunity to lift themselves out of extreme poverty and and so we wanted to do something that was sustainable and and um you know he sends me the most beautiful messages he's like he's just the most lovely guy and I mean he he but you know I gotta tell you that life isn't easy just because um just because he has the support you know like during COVID like everyone else he wasn't able to work because mm. because you know the Manila authority the authorities decided that rickshaw drivers could only drive every odd or even day depending on their license plate and so it, it you know you, you see how things that affect you and I have a much greater profound impact on those living in extreme poverty because they're living on the edge of existence already so if you take away that livelihood, you take away their school, you take away their food security, you take away any access to healthcare, and it has a snowball effect. And that's the challenge of extreme poverty, you know, helping people graduate out of living on less than $1.90 per day to having their own job, and then ultimately um, growing from a small enterprise into a larger enterprise so they can actually support their family and their community. You know, how do you define extreme poverty? What's the difference between poverty and extreme poverty? Well, you know, poverty as a notion is relative, right? Um, so, you know, someone could be poorer than someone else, but both of them could be relatively affluent. So it's not actually helpful to talk about it in terms of poverty, I find. I always focus on, you know, the, the World Bank definition of those living on less than US $1.90 per day, but it's much better to think about it in terms of the indicators, the inputs that are needed to alleviate poverty, which is obviously food security, water and sanitation, healthcare. We're not just talking about polio. We're talking about HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, all the leading killers of kids under the age of five. We're talking about water and sanitation. Um, and we're talking about the empowerment of girls and women. And increasingly, the world is seeing the nexus between climate change and extreme poverty, because ultimately, you know, when a huge hurricane comes through a poor community or a natural disaster, as we've just seen in Turkey, it has a disproportionate effect on the poor because they don't have the infrastructure to begin with and so or safe infrastructure to begin with. And so that's where... Um, you can wipe entire GDP points off economies simply through natural disasters and why we need to understand the nexus between climate change and extreme poverty. So you had this experience in Manila, you went back to Australia, but it seems like you were on this journey from, from that day on, right? And you went and spent a year in India. I didn't know you went to Woodstock in Missouri. I did, yeah. Uh, it was... <laughs> I have a lot of friends <laughs> who went there. <laughs> you do? That's great. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Great. It's it's uh, Missouri is beautiful, right? The hill it, stations it of India. It is. It is. So I yeah I came back and I came back at the end of that time in the Philippines and I said to my mum, you know, I, I this is my life's journey now, and she was a bit aghast. She didn't know how to take that, and um, I That's said exactly I want to go. And that's exactly where I was going to go with this question, which is you're a, this regular kid in Melbourne, right? And then you start making these really unconventional choices. 
Um, you go to India, then after that, you spend your gap year in Africa. How did your family react? Well, well, not not so well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> my mum, my mum hated the idea. I remember I said to her, "I'm going to go and live for a year in India," and she said, "You know, there's no there's no way that's going to happen." I said, "Well, I'll do, if I can do you a deal, if I can apply for a scholarship to go to Woodstock School in the Himalayas, so that it doesn't cost because you know our family wasn't super well off. We were just middle class." Um, from Melbourne and so um, so we obviously couldn't afford for me to go and so I said if I can get a full scholarship will you let me go and she said okay deal and so I worked as hard as I possibly could and uh, got this scholarship and and I'll never forget the day I jumped on the airplane from Melbourne through Singapore onto Delhi about to catch the Shatabdi Express up to up to uh, the Himalayas and I remember I jumped on the airplane. I was a 15-year-old kid. I was by myself and I sat next to this big businessman. And I remember I looked him up in the eyes and I completely burst into tears. I was so scared because I realized what had happened to me. I was like, okay, I can't I can't speak to my parents anymore for another year. <laughs> and so, and it was before the days of like data service or proper cell phones. So that like, and there was no reception in the Himalayas right and so (laughs) and so so like mom would hate it like she would try to call me and it wouldn't go through ever and you know and I I remember the day I I arrived into into Woodstock and a a couple of crazy things happened you know both really formative things for me but in both a good way and a bad way I guess um firstly I arrived in my bed that I was going to be sleeping on had a spider infestation and so oh, I, no. I remember I remember oh, no. the, the the dorm master whacking hundreds of spiders under my bed and then just put it back and said okay go to bed now <laughs> and then the and then the oh, second my God. thing that, and then the second thing that happened was I had my first introduction to communal bathrooms because like I grew up in like private <laughs> Australia and then and like first day in the bathroom and all of a sudden like I'm like okay I lost my sense of self-consciousness. <laughs> and, um, but but also something really tragic happened. Like two weeks after I arrived, I was just playing up at the school with my friend John. You know, we're both 15-year-old kids, students just playing. And all of a sudden, a car fell over the cud, fell over the cliff face. And, you know, there's no ambulance service in that region, right? And so me and my friend John ran down and tried to act as the first responders to a, a tra- just tragic, oh tragic, God. tragic scene where a man had, wet, you know, was wedged between the fork of a tree mm-hmm. hanging over the cliff. And, you know, we, we, with a few others, I ran up and got a stretcher from the school. We, we placed him in the back of a, a car and try and John jumped in the back to try to give him mouth to mouth resuscitation. But the, the man, you know, tragically passed away an hour later. And I, 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 it, the, that night I, I just, I mean, call me naive and maybe I was, but like, I just, it hit me that night how fragile life is. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, okay, this is where I live now. This is a different, you know, it just, it shifted my, shifted my gears entirely. Like, I think I went to India very much as a self conscious 15 year old student. And came back with the realization that in those days, you know, two thirds of people in India were homeless or slum dwellers. That's it was thirty nine times Australia's population homeless or slum dwellers. So it mm-hmm. hit me that the scale of the challenge 
couldn't be solved through traditional charity. Like I, 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 in some ways became a little more, my eyes were more widely open to the, the limitations of traditional charity. It hit me that no amount of black tie gala dinners or nice fundraisers were ever going to solve a, a $3.5 trillion challenge. And so I had to think about it differently. And it was that year in India that changed my perspective on things. And you have chosen a rather non-traditional way. And your way is, like you said, you don't get people to donate money, but you get people to, to take action. Tell us a little bit about this model. How does it work? Well, our model was inspired by one of the final speeches that Nelson Mandela gave back in 2005 in Trafalgar Square when he helped launch the Make Poverty History campaign. And he he said at the time, he said that overcoming poverty, it's not a gesture of charity, but it's an act of justice. He then said, like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It's man-made and can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. And I love though that, that speech because in, there, in that speech lies two hugely important truths. Firstly, that extreme poverty is a systemic issue, not a charitable challenge. And secondly, that it can be overcome by action taking, as he said. And so what we decided to do was to leverage the power of citizen action taking at scale. We created an app, the Global Citizen app, where citizens would download it and call on world leaders in unison. We have millions of members. So let's say we're all calling on the same world leader at once to make a multi-billion dollar pledge to that specific issue area. One great example is a couple of years ago, we launched what we call the Twitter invasion of Norway with Stephen Colbert. And we had so many global mm-hmm. citizens call on Prime Minister Erna Solberg of Norway when she was in power to be one of the first Scandinavian countries to support girls' education globally, properly at scale. And I remember we, we launched this campaign one night and I got a call from the chief of staff the next day saying, cancel all the tweets. We can't see any tweets from the Norwegian people because we're getting too many from global citizens and we're in the middle of an election. Oh. We need to stop the tweets. And they said, come come to Oslo. And so we flew, we flew to Oslo. We sat down with the prime minister and we said, would you champion... Um, global partnership for education. And she said, okay. And she came on Global Citizen Stage and made a $250 million commitment. And that's how the model works. We, we, we show that it's much more effective to create systemic change through actions and it's through achieving that at scale. So we now have 11 and a half million members around the world and all of those members take action. And music is a very important platform for you as well. And um, very often, so when people make these actions, then they earn a reward, right? And that's often a pass to one of, to a global citizen experience. For example, one of your ultra famous music concerts that you hold around the world. And we'll talk about the concerts in a minute, but why, why music? Well, music has always been the anthem of movements throughout all of social history. So if you think about, um, a song like Amazing Grace that inspired the, the late William Wilberforce. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a story of redemption. A person that, that was a slave trader decided that he had, um, you know, he says that saved a wrench like me. You know, he, he called himself a wrench for, for everything that he had done to hurt humanity. Or if you think about, you know, the anti-apartheid movement and the march on Pretoria, it was 
it was the anthem, you know, often the Zulu or Kosa anthems at the time that inspired the solidarity movement. And I believe that the same is true right now. You know, music can be that great catalyzer. And the way that we've used it at Global Citizen is that we've partnered with the world's biggest musicians to provide scalable incentives for citizens to take action so they can come to the Global Citizen Festival for free. We said, we don't want your money. We want you to take action. We want action to be your currency. So the more actions you take, the greater the likelihood that you'll be able to come to the Global Citizen Festival. But through our partnership with Live Nation and Ticketmaster, you can now earn rewards to every great artist show around the world. And in fact, we're driving more actions through the Global Citizen app than through any of our festivals. So while our festivals are really high profile, year round, citizens are taking action every second of every day. And so that's actually how you create sustainable change because movements can't come and go. It's not like there's, there's less urgency just because an issue falls out of the headlines. We need to create that sense of urgency. And the only way you can do that is using the power of technology powered by the anthem of music year round. So since your audience, they aren't buying tickets to attend these, uh, these music concerts, which have the biggest names in the world, how do you fund them? Well, we work with great philanthropists. So for example, um, Bloomberg Philanthropies alongside the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation supported our Global Goal Unite for Our Future campaign in 2020 when we were focused on the issue of financing vaccine equity around the world during the pandemic. Um, we also work with, with ethical um, organizations and, and, and corporations that actually want to make a difference in the world. So amazing groups like Accenture or Citibank or Cisco or Procter & Gamble or Verizon or, or Delta Airlines who've partnered with us. And the cool thing about the way they work with Global Citizen is they say, you know what? we want to partner with you to help reach the whole world with this message of good, which is for me is really positive because it shows that global citizen doesn't partner with, sorry, doesn't, doesn't compete with a normal NGO. It's not mm -hmm. like we're going out and trying to take the money that, you know, someone would want to give to a UNICEF or a save the children. Right. We don't, we don't ask consumers for their dollars, but instead we're going to brands and saying, could you give us marketing support and marketing dollars that you might otherwise allocate to say a sporting event, because wouldn't it be much better than just funding a sporting event, actually fund something that can actually change the world. And these brands do, and they go, okay, cool. We love sports. So we'll still allocate some money for sport mm -hmm. over here, but we'll also allocate money so that we can actually support global citizen to have a huge impact. And that's why they're able to support us over the long haul, which is actually a far better model because it means that we're not running from pillar to post, just trying to fundraise all the time. We're actually able to be strategic. And so when an issue hits the world, like the pandemic did, or like the war in Ukraine did, Global Citizen is equipped to respond because we have a team at the ready who's able to rapidly respond to the world's greatest challenges. And we're finding that these brands are stepping up in ways that you wouldn't even imagine, whether it's their commitment to the race to zero, to cutting their own carbon emissions, or working with us as we have with Procter & Gamble on period poverty around the world, or, or, or genuinely trying to close the digital divide as we've seen with Cisco and Verizon. You know, we've seen how brands are like, okay, we want to integrate 
not just our purpose work, but actually integrate that into our business model. And so that's been a really exciting evolution that we're seeing. You have a new experience uh, coming up in April. Tell us about that. Well, this is something that we've been working on for a long time. And, and I, um, you know, the, the dream here, and it's called Global Citizen Now, is we wanted to create a moment to bring together the best leaders in activism and the NGO world, the best leaders in the corporate world, the best leaders in the political world, and the best leaders in the artist world, all under one roof. But instead of it becoming a talk fest like so many of those conferences are, we decided that our, our whole mantra would be about turning ideas into impact and driving urgent change to end extreme poverty now. So on April 27th and 28th, we're hosting Global Citizen Now. It's going to be our two-day summit in New York City. It's the second year we're hosting it. Last year, we were thrilled that incredible activists like Pharrell Williams and Gloria Steinem and President Bondeline and Chuck Robbins of Cisco all came along to help us kick it off. And this year, you know, we we're, couldn't be happier that, you know, President Bondeline is coming back. Hugh Jackman and Chris Martin are going to be there. Um, you know, Prime Minister mm -hmm. Mia Motley of Barbados, who's become an amazing champion for what's called the Bridgetown agenda of, of climate financing, as well as, you know, Nana Akufu Adu, the president of Ghana, and an extraordinary group of private sector leaders like Hans Vesberg, the, the chairman and CEO of Verizon, Nia Bade, who's the uh, co-CEO of Bridgewater and Associates, Fran Katsudis, who's the chief people officer at Cisco. You know, we're, we're bringing together this extraordinary group of, of, of amazing leaders, but everything is focused on action taking and everything is focused on impact. So we're not going to host a single panel unless there's an action to be taken out of it. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. 
Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. When you go to these celebrities, um, Chris Martin, I know, has been a big part of your campaign from pretty much the start, right? From the start of uh, Global Citizen. What What's your pitch? What do you say to them? How do you manage to get every A-lister to join you? For us, it, it's all about can we measure impact, right? You know, because life's too short. There's no point us running. I, I don't actually believe in the concept of awareness raising. I think people already know that extreme poverty exists. They just need to know how to change it, right? People already know that climate change is happening. They just need to know how to change it. So if we can't bring a solution to our artist partners, then we're not a good partner to them. So every time we do a briefing, we sit down with Chris Martin or with Hugh Jackman or with Beyonce or Priyanka Chopra Jonas, we bring to that conversation a set of policy outcomes that we are committed to achieving, a campaign timeline in which we're going to achieve it, and a set of milestones along the way. And so they can go, okay, am I truly enlisted in this? Like, so for example, early on in the pandemic, when Chris Martin started jamming in his house around the Together at Home concert. We said, okay, we have to raise money to support PPE because at that stage, frontline community healthcare workers desperately needed funding just for basic things like masks and and uh, and and face shields and so on and gloves and and uh, so on and so forth. And so when Lady Gaga came to us and, and we had that conversation with her and, and Dr. Tedros, the head of the WHO around turning this into one world together at home, we said, okay, let's sit down and let's host roundtables and get every corporation to commit one by one. And we got, you know, Apple's CEO committed $10 million on, on the spot, you know, like it was extraordinary generosity. And we got $127.9 million raised in just a few days and broke two world records in the Guinness World Records because of the focus on outcomes. And then we have an impact measurement team whose entire job it is to track the follow through of those commitments to make sure that those dollars and those supplies, in this case, it was PPE, ends up in the hands of those who need it most. And so that's our, that's our model. We bring to an artist a real solution and we track that solution and we say, how can we make this scalable? I, I just fully believe with all my heart that if we just host more gala dinners, as nice as they are, we'll be hosting gala dinners till all of eternity and we'll have not made a dent in extreme poverty. Let's flip the model and let's see how advocacy can leverage public resource tied with private resource at scale because we need trillions of dollars to end extreme poverty. It's not going to be solved just through the good feelings that you and I might get through building a single water well here or a school there. As, and by the way, that's important and those, that infrastructure needs to exist. 
but we must finance it. What I'm trying to get at is we must finance it at scale. We can't be financing it through just short-term transactions. You know, all the actions people take, they're, they're directed towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals, whether it's education or gender discrimination, health, um, these, these important issues. What would have happened if you just picked one issue or just why not just pick one, say education? We focus obviously on the, 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 the macro challenge of ending extreme poverty. The key thing to realize is that these issues are deeply interconnected. And if you were to focus just on one issue, that same issue will be very quickly undermined by another. Let me give you an example. So take Barbados, a, a low to middle income country that is, you know, now has a great democratically elected leader in Prime Minister Motley, who's, you know, doing so much to try to champion their economy. And let's say you and I, to your logic, want to focus just on the issue of job creation, for example. Okay, so that was our issue. We went job creation, we're going to support. So we, we developed all the inputs, we supported the Farmers Association in Barbados, so on and so forth. Then all of a sudden, a hurricane comes through, and it wipes out all of the infrastructure of Barbados for months, and is completely destroyed. Because you and I had taken our eye off the prize, and we hadn't really focused on the interconnected of these issues, we just focused on one issue. All of a sudden, those people are going to be out of work for months. They're going to be complaining for months and they'll be pushed straight back into extreme poverty. So single issue advocacy, while important, is incomplete. The second thing I'd say is that it also ignores how global funding cycles work mm -hmm. because every five years, the world raises money to fight HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis through the Global Fund or then Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, or the IFID replenishment, sorry, the IDA replenishment of the World Bank. So if we just focused on one issue in the intervening four years, are we just going to let people suffer and just twiddle our thumbs? I don't think so. I think that's where we actually need to understand how global funding cycles work and understand how, one, if you don't address these issues in an interconnected fashion, they will undermine each other. And two, we actually have the opportunity to find those moments, those rare political moments where the right confluence of good leadership comes together with good public policy to do the right thing. Perfect example is this year in June when President Macron alongside Prime Minister Motley and several other world leaders have agreed to host a summit on climate financing. This isn't the year where we're raising money for the Global Fund. This isn't the year where we're raising money for Gavi. It's the moment where we can focus on, on two big things both climate financing and the $16.5 billion financing gap under the uh, Paris Climate Change Accord. But secondly, we can also focus on the issue of equitable access to financing for the developing world more broadly. Because for too long, the World Bank has been missing in action and their $2 trillion in reserve assets have been sitting there doing nothing and the balance sheet has not been stretched because you've had a leader under Malpass who fortunately has now resigned, who wasn't really committed to global development. And so this is where my point is, you can't just let people suffer. You have to choose those moments where you can have real breakthroughs. And every year provides a new moment for a breakthrough. Looking back, what are you proudest of in Global Citizen's journey so far? I'm proudest of our team. You know, like when I, like, we still have the, uh, like the small team that started in the early days, you know, mm -hmm. like our co-founder Mick and, Simon and Kwaku and 
and Liza and Caroline and, you know, our, our broader team, you know, everyone who's involved has been involved for like, you know, almost more than 10 years, you know, like they, they've really dedicated their, their, their lives to it. Like, and, you know, our, our founding chairperson, Peter, he, you know, he was involved for the first 11 years and he's still involved on the peripheries because, mm-hmm. because it's like, even though he retired as chairman, he wanted to stay involved. So I think like what I find in our team, we always have this, this, this internal dialogue of saying, are we truly putting the mission first? And if we ever lose sight of that, then woe is us. You know, we've got to always keep that as our true north. Um, and it can be hard because, you know, when you grow as an organization um, and, you know, you take on new challenges and, and lots of more staff, you know, it can be easy to focus on the process rather than the outcome. Um, I remember our, our founding chairman first said to me, you never, ever lose sight of the track that you're trying to build a movement, not an institution. There's tons of institutions that are fat and bloated and do nothing. Your goal is to build an agile movement that never loses its focus on the mission. And so I believe in in 15 years time when we've eradicated extreme poverty, global citizens should not need to exist anymore. We can have one final concert as a celebration in Central Park, but then we should close our doors because because that's got to be our true north. That's got to be our modus operandi. That's got to be the way in which we drive ourselves. Are we any closer to ending global poverty than we were when you first launched? So, so, so there's good news and bad news. The good news is when I was born in 1983, 52% of the planet lived in extreme poverty. Um, and over the last 30 years, that actually reduced to only 12% of the world's population just before the pandemic. So we'd made amazing progress. In fact, some people almost thought that the end of extreme poverty was going so well, it was almost inevitable. But then obviously the pandemic struck, yeah. then the war in Ukraine, which impacts grain and food, food prices, and then also the recession, which impacts the poor the most, right? So now is not the time to keep our eyes off the price. At precisely the moment when the world needs to focus most on the eradication of extreme poverty, many people have to look inward right now because they're like, oh, it's a terrible economy, right? And so people are like, okay, do I need to focus on my well-being? But now is not the time to take our eyes off the prize. The world was making great progress. It can make great progress again. We need political leadership that is courageous. We also need we also need the private sector, and I'm glad that you know you're a champion of this, to realize they have a huge role to play. You know, when when I was at the World Economic Forum a few a few uh like last month, I saw that there were great partners like Accenture, like City, like Cisco that were willing to use their brands as forces for good and show how they could create change. It was super inspiring. And so I think that, that what I find is that when crisis strikes, it's if, if the private sector leads first, government often follows fast. Mm-hmm. It actually, I've seen it, I saw it during um, the... Uh, COVID pandemic, I saw it again with the war in Ukraine. It's possible for the private sector to be a leader as a force for good. And so I would encourage every executive who's listening to this to use your platform as a force for good. You have so much power to then persuade government to also do the right thing. I want to go back to impact, how ordinary citizens can make an impact by pledging to do something. 
Do you recall a time when ordinary citizens have taken an action which has led to a result that's actually really surprised you, something you, were, you weren't sure was going to work? Yeah, I get surprised all the time. Um, <laughs> so back in 2018, 20, 2018 2019, when we, we worked, um, Kraku Mandela, one of our our, our chief vision officer at Global Citizen, he had this dream of working with his family to celebrate his grandfather Nelson Mandela's 100th anniversary. And so we brought Global Citizen to South Africa and Beyonce and Jay-Z and Coldplay and Ed Sheeran and Pharrell and Oprah Winfrey and Dave Chappelle and um, Trevor Noah and extraordinary group of people all decided they wanted to be part of this. Naomi Campbell, it was really amazing. And the momentum was building and we decided we wanted to partner with local activists rather than just presume that we knew what to bring as a policy mm -hmm. agenda. So we met with a whole bunch of local activists and there was this extraordinary, amazing activists from across Johannesburg and they were running this campaign called It's Bloody Time. Mm -hmm. It was focused on period poverty across South Africa. And they came to us and they said, you know, we, 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 we're, we're gaining good momentum, but we need the scale of your platform. And we're like, okay, great, let's partner. Mm -hmm. And so we worked on this campaign and we got global citizens to start making phone calls to try to earn tickets to this event in December. And the first goal was to try to eliminate the tax on menstrual hygiene products. And they made so, our global citizens made so many phone calls to Pretoria that the government had to take all the phones off the hook because they, were, they couldn't keep up with the, the number of inbound phone calls. That's fantastic. And so it was fantastic. And so we, we together with those local activists, successfully got the, the tax on pads and napkins uh, um, and menstrual hygiene products eliminated. But that wasn't enough. You know, we actually had to see, see more follow through. And so we kept the pressure specifically on President Ramaphosa. And he was coming to Global Citizen. And I'll never forget um, all, the, all the great activists were in the arena in, uh, in Johannesburg. And the president looked at me and he, he spoke about how he'd heard about this bloody time campaign. And uh, he put out, he brought out his iPad as he was preparing his speech and he wrote in the column $129 million for menstrual hygiene products. He just wrote that then and there because he was so moved by the momentum. And that's what enabled him to then follow through and, and make sure a million girls across South Africa in public schools had access to menstrual hygiene products. So we often find right until the very last second when a world leader is willing to take the stage that they're, you know, and we make sure we hold their feet to the fire to make sure they follow through on those commitments. Um, and we have the best journalistic partners, like, you know, the editor-in-chief of Forbes is on our board, Randall Lane. He helps us hold world leaders accountable. We, we love to partner with journalists to make sure those world leaders actually follow through on what they're going to say. But it's powerful stuff when you see how up until that very last moment, a head of state with the discretion to make a difference does so. That's fantastic. And period poverty is such a real issue in the developing world. I mean, to, to see tangible change like that is an incredible. I'm constantly struck by the fact that you were this young Australian kid who saw, who experienced a night in a slum in Manila, but that changed the course of your life. I'm the mom of a teenage boy. <laughs> I see teenage kids a lot. Um, I'm sure many of them have seen poverty. I don't know how many of them are going to sort of go down the path that you've chosen. 
I really want to understand why do you think that affected you so much? Oh, it's funny. Like I, I, this is a bit of a personal answer that I don't usually talk about, but I, I probably wasn't as aware at the time as I am now about the factors that were going on in my life at the, at that time, you know, like my parents were going through a divorce. My, um, my home life wasn't, it wasn't massively stable. And so I think now that I look back on it, in some ways, the opportunity to serve others became a catharsis for me. I didn't realize it at the time, um, but, but I was able to think, okay, the world has so much greater needs than all the challenges that I'm going through. They're minuscule by comparison, right? And so, and so it gave me this intense focus on on the issues of justice that I, I knew in my heart had always driven me. You know, I grew up um, believing, you know, that the world should be more just, should be more compassionate, should be more kind to others. They were values that were instilled in me in a young age. But I, when I saw firsthand the reality of it, and I've got to admit, in those early days, I had no idea what what path that would take you know i thought at one stage i wanted to be the ceo of world vision in australia and and because i looked up to mm -hmm. to to um the ceo at the time and then i was really fortunate in that um two of australia's former prime ministers kevin rudd and julia gillard both kindly agreed to mentor me so i saw the power of political change um but it really wasn't until probably a seminal moment when I was 21 and I was studying in university and the G20 was coming through Melbourne and me and my mate, Dan Adams had this idea to run a small concert that one day exploded when Bono and Pearl Jam agreed to perform at it. And we managed to convince the Australian government to double foreign aid off the back of this campaign. It wasn't until that moment that I, I guess my, my, my true North took greater shape. It took, it took time. Um, it took a lot of education and uneducation. You know, I had to relearn and learn all over again. Um, but I, I think those factors at home, coupled with the people who influenced my life, um, came together in, in the way it did. It's probably a way of, of healing for yourself as well. I'd say so, yeah. So one of your mentors, Kevin Rudd, he's been on this podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and my last question is, this podcast is called Out of Office. What's your favorite thing to do when you're not in the office? By far, my, my favorite thing. <laughs> it's surfing. I absolutely love surfing. And I, you know, people would say, well, of course he does. He's Australian. But no, I, <laughs> I, I did not surf growing up. It wasn't until the last five years where I really took it up and I've absolutely fallen in love with it. because. When you're in the water and a huge wave is coming towards you, is it last week I actually went surfing and I got totally humbled because this wave absolutely crushed me and I I was terrified. But then the next day I went out and I had the best surf of my life where I caught the longest wave I ever have. And I was like, it's those, you see the power of nature, but you see also just the beauty of nature. And so for me, nothing like surfing, like 
I'll, I'd, <laughs> if I could, if I could somehow work as hard as I need to and surf, I would do that every day, but I don't think those two are possible. <laughs> it's a bit, <laughs> it's forever going to be a tension. Well, one day, maybe one day when, when you've eradicated <laughs> extreme poverty, you can go out and surf every day. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to me on Out of Profits to You. Thank you, Malika. It's such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. That was Hugh Evans, co-founder and CEO of Global Citizen. I hope you enjoyed our chat. I know that I enjoyed every minute of it. This episode was produced by Yajo San and Yang Yang. I'm Malika Kapoor. As always, thank you for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.